For me, fashion is a verb. So it's true fashion. My name's Claire Press, and I'm Vogue Australia's sustainability editor. You're listening to Wardrobe Crisis. I just think it's curiosity at the core of it. Like, I just really want to know the answer to things. You talk about revolution in 68. No, we make the revolution before. Can we just go back to making really beautiful clothes with a soul and minimize the waste and think a little before we we make things and bring back the value? Provided you wake up every morning and you're aware of the fact that your wardrobe is in the fashion supply chain, then you're a fashion decision maker. Join me every week as we talk ethics, sustainability and the business and madness of fashion. From who made your clothes to how they impact on the environment to the politics of personal style. Welcome to our 100th episode. I cannot believe I get to say that. <laughs> it feels like that should be the introduction. Just say no more. 100. Because I have said quite a lot over the past two years, haven't I? Sharing stories about everything from justice for garment workers to climate change to plastic pollution. Dear listener, it couldn't have happened without you. I am humbled and delighted by your support, your reviews, your shares and your messages. It literally makes my day to hear what these podcasts have meant in your life. And that's what keeps me going, knowing that these conversations get you thinking and talking and often acting too to change the world. Special shout out to everyone who contributed to our crowdfunding campaign for Series 3 that made it possible for me to continue. And of course, to our sponsors. And a huge thank you to my guests, all 100 of you. Actually, there's probably more because sometimes I interview two people at once. In fact, next week, I'm interviewing four people at once. So look forward to that. There are, of course, too many guests to rattle them all off here. But please do help me celebrate by sharing your favourites on social media. I'm at Mrs Press on Instagram and Twitter. And you can use the hashtag wardrobe crisis podcast. Now, this week's guest is sure to make your favourites list. She is Sinead Burke, the Irish fashion journalist, activist and inclusivity advocate and now podcaster herself, actually, who at three and a half foot tall, frankly towers over the rest of us with her grace and eloquence and all round awesomeness. You might have watched Sinead's TED Talk, Why Design Should Include Everyone, and we'll share a link. Or maybe you heard about her telling the World Economic Forum at Davos this year that we have to continuously ask who is not in the room. No doubt you saw her on the cover of the Duchess of Sussex edited September issue of British Vogue. Come on, everyone saw that. We're sold out, completely sold out. And actually, I couldn't get hold of a copy. And then when we did this interview, there was one in the hotel room and I nicked it. (laughs) Fact. I think it's fair enough. I was so happy to hear that Sinead is a Wardrobe Crisis fan. Um, We were both actually judges on the Green Carpet Awards for Best Emerging Designer and we were supposed to be in Milan in June or July together this year, but that didn't happen and we've been trying to find us in the same city ever since. Now that happened in September in London during Fashion Week. So of course, we talk about clothes and let's just say that these days Sinead gets about in custom-made Gucci But it wasn't always the case. So we talk about what happens when clothes don't fit you, when the world is not designed for you. We ask, why doesn't the fashion industry embrace the opportunity to cater for more shapes and sizes and abilities? 
Why does it so often exclude and how can we change that? I feel like there's so much to be inspired by in this one. From Sinead's advice on how to be a good ally, to the power of kindness, to how to succeed. But you know what? It's also just really good fun. Sinead, thank you for being my guest number 100 and just fabulous. If you want to tune into her show, by the way, check out the show notes on clairepress.com and we'll share a link. Now, let's get to it. Sinead, I'm so excited that we're doing this. Welcome to our mock studio, which is, in fact, a rather grand hotel room. <laughs> it's beautiful. And I'm such an admirer of your work in this podcast. So it is genuinely such a treat. Oh my to goodness, be here. thank you. I'm <laughs> excited because you're about to launch your own new podcast and it's going to be amazing. What's well, it called? I hope so. It's called As Me with Sinead. And I'm excited. It's conversations with extraordinary people about who we are and what makes us all human. You have access to some extraordinary people. We're going to get into that. But what sorts of people could we expect? You can expect leaders and thinkers within fashion, design, film and television and architecture and activists. And it's about learning from the spotlight that is reflected from those who are very successful and very well acknowledged to those who will go on to undoubtedly do incredible things. Of course you would be inclusive in this whole concept, (laughs) but I love that that is so well considered because we do tend to really focus on big name famous people, talking Hmm. of which I saw you with the Queen at Victoria Beckham. Absolutely absurd. I have no (laughs) idea how that happened. It was incredibly lovely. Yeah, I got to sit next to Dame Helen Mirren at the show, who was just wonderful. We were both dressed very similarly in terms of our silhouette, which I took as a huge compliment. We texted before you went, hey, Dame. (laughs) You wear the reptile print. I'll wear the dots. And we'll both do the accentuated cuffs, collars. We'll be fine. No, sadly, we did not have this conversation, but she was wonderful. We spoke about design actually quite a lot she asked me about my work I of course knew everything about hers um but we talked about how design just historically hasn't been inclusive did you yeah we we ended up talking about you know dresses and I was mentioning that famous moment that Jane Fonda posted on Instagram where she was at an award ceremony she was stuck in the frock yeah because she couldn't get to the zip because it was designed by people who don't have to wear frocks historically you know that happened to me it happens to all of us that happened to me I was at this the opening of the Dior exhibition that happened in Melbourne at the same year that it happened in Paris and in I think Shanghai and I'd had this vintage bodice attached to this wonderful remnant of bow strewn silk and the bodice was way too tight for me in the first place and I got the thing on and then I got back to my Airbnb and had no one to help me and I was like this is a Jane Fonda moment. Huge and I think when I'm on stage if I'm speaking at a conference or something I will often ask the question to the audience how many people have slept in a dress and you see men in the room looking terribly confused what do you mean sleeping in a dress and women sheepishly are those who identify as elsewhere on the gender spectrum putting their hand up sheepishly and going yeah yeah I have but I think I'm the only one in the room who has done so and then you look around and lots of people have their hand up because it was designed in a way not to include us because it was designed in an era where those who wore dresses had domestic help or husbands to do that for them and it was never designed in a way that promoted agency or autonomy in an era that women would be going back to an airbnb or a hotel or living alone and for me it's like well you're contorting yourself to get in and out of something that you bought and you wear with pride so we were talking about dresses and zips we were talking about mic packs so we're speaking with wonderful microphones today but often if you're speaking and doing an interview or doing a stage presence it's like a small little mic pack yeah. a radio mic a britney you spears have mic to clip it onto the waistband of your trousers let's hope you wore some because if you're wearing a dress where do you clip it and 
the sound engineer hopes that you have a belt on your dress. But if you don't, then they're like, oh, we'll clip it to your bra. And if you're like, oh, I'm not wearing a bra because this dress can't be worn with a bra, then there's panic because that was designed for men's trousers or suit jackets. And yeah, we talked about all of those things. From your perspective, as a little person, Mm -hmm. the world is not designed to make your life easy. We talk about inclusivity. You delivered an amazing TED Talk which addresses this subject. For those who haven't listened to it and watched it, we'll share a link. But just give us a bit of insight into that. Sure. I am physically disabled. I have a chondroplasia, which is the most common form of dwarfism. And I have always been a little person. I stand at the height of three foot five inches tall. So I'm about half the size of most of the population. And my greatest challenge is that I live in this world which was never designed for me. And... The advocacy work that I do is not trying to get the world redesigned for me specifically, because that's impractical. If the world was designed to fit me and be proportioned to me, you would find that challenging and difficult. But it's just to think about the opportunities for creativity, innovation, profitability and inclusion that would exist if we were a bit more broader thinking in how we construct and build this world. And that's everything from public bathrooms and not being able to reach the lock on the door that is going in to order a cup of coffee and the counter being too high that's going into a retail store and not being able to reach anything because it's on high hangers it's going to an office building and not being able to get in because the bell to open the locked door is really high so it's just that we design things out of reach and we design things for one specific eyeline and at one point of reference instead of thinking about lots of different people who exist in society and whether that's children and putting low sinks in public bathrooms or whether that's people who are wheelchair users and thinking about a ramp being there instead of steps and looking at beautiful construction so I look at my role because my background is in education as a facilitator to those with enormous power and influence and opportunity to try to think about how we can build things a bit more inclusively. You actually wanted to be a teacher. Uh, yeah, I did. And you studied that, right? I did. I did it. My degree is in primary school teaching or elementary school teaching, and I loved it. And I taught in, in some Dublin. Of, yeah, in some of the most kind of socioeconomic challenging areas. And in many ways, it was being a teacher in the classroom that really taught me about the challenges and limitations of design. Because when I announced to my parents at age four that I wanted to be a teacher they were incredibly confident in my abilities but as I went to university began to study it my own peers would come up to me and say how are you going to be a teacher did they yeah that's awful and I think it was out of care I don't think it was out of maliciousness Mm. I think they were genuinely worried about how I would exist in that space because they said you know the children are going to be bigger than you you're not going to be able to hang up the artwork on the walls you're not going to be able to reach the blackboard or the whiteboard The light switches are going to be out of reach. And particularly when you're not a permanent teacher, you won't be in a position to architecturally change any of those things. So what are you going to do? And I think in many ways I had just always assumed because I was fortunate to be born into an incredible family who still to this day support me in everything that I do, that I've always had this mentality that anything is possible. Absolutely. You talked so beautifully about that, that your family said, well, that was never a question. Absolutely. And that you might have to do things a different way but it's never going to be a limiter for you. And for me, that's always been really important. But that conversation with my colleague and somebody Mm. I was training with really made me think. And I began to realize initially this idea of, you know, children being bigger than you and that equating to respect is such an archaic idea of power. And for me, my vision of a teacher was never somebody who stood at the top of the room and was authoritative Mm -hmm. in their leadership. But for me, it was about power sharing. And actually the children being bigger or the same size as me was an incredible asset because we were all at eye level. 
Well, think about when you want to connect with a child and if yeah. you do bend down, it's just a different experience. Absolutely. And I was having that all of the time in my classroom and it was promoting a vulnerability or a way in which children could be authentic and not feel like they had to say what the teacher wanted to hear because there was this equality. But also children are sponges and basically they absorb what they're told. So if they're told that authority or power equals height or let's face it a man with a strong voice then this is stuff that's learnt behavior we can change culture I mean it shouldn't be just something we accept absolutely and yes the classroom wasn't designed for me Mm. but it created amazing opportunities among me and my students because I couldn't reach the walls to hang up the artwork but it then meant that my students became curators of our class museum and they then gave feedback as they decided which artwork to hang and they would say to me Miss Burke you're very good at lots of things, but art is not your thing. <laughs> and we realise you've really tried this week, but we just can't put it up on the wall. But my goodness, Claire, look at the colour and the vibrancy and it's all inside the lines. We're going to hang yours up. And that's skills that, that's critical thinking, that's articulation, that's self-confidence. And none of those skills would have been amplified or encouraged had I not been a disabled teacher because I would have just done those things myself. You not being a teacher is a loss for kids, but then you being a fashion journalist is a boon for this industry. Thank you for being such a thing. No, thank you. I never thought that this would be my path. But it's, I, so, it's so interesting. Let's just talk a little yeah. bit about the, how that happened. You started a blog while you were still at university. Oh, yeah, I started a blog. and Just for because you were fascinated by fashion. Well, the blog began as an actual assignment. So if anybody has children or knows of school-age children, kids will come home from a full day of school and adults or parents will say to them, what did you do today? And the child will say, nothing. Nothing. What do you mean you did nothing? You were there for eight hours. You must have done something. And we were set this assignment as a blog because our lecturer said, you know, blogs are brilliant. This was 10 years ago. I was going to say, at that time, blogs, come on. They were very new age. Mm. We were using WordPress. We were learning the very basics of HTML code. And, you know, the idea for the assignment was that as teachers, we could have class blogs and we could update these blogs with what we were doing in the classroom to try and create a community between home and school. And at the time for the assignment, the lecturer said, you can write about anything you want. And, and what, what did he, everyone else write about? Well, he meant in education. <laughs> yeah. He didn't mean actually anything you want. But I wrote about Kate Blanchett wearing Givenchy Couture to the Oscars. <laughs> and how as Irish people, we couldn't call things that we had made or bought locally couture because there's legal stipulations and definitions. Now, I know that you did this. Mm-hmm. And it's something that really, I just was like, I'm punching the air. <laughs> yes. This is a conversation I have often and people always say, oh, come on, don't be a pedant. But I'm a wordsmith. I would mm-hmm. like to actually pin down the definitions mm-hmm. and get them right in Double Bay in Sydney. There is a store which is called Ready to Wear Couture. Fact. <laughs> I, I admire them. I admire their ambition and their confidence. Good on them. Yeah. What is the definition of couture? It has to be made by hand in an atelier in Paris. And there are there is a legal council that exists that the CEO of Yves Saint Laurent is currently the chief of. And you have to apply to be a couture house and you have to be audited and upheld to a specific number of guidelines. You actually have to have a certain number of people working in your atelier. It's very rigid, isn't it? It's very rigid. It's like champagne. But then some people would say, no, that's only haute couture and you can still use the word couture if you're a dressmaker. I actually think I like the idea that we take fashion seriously and define it with as much rigour as we would with things that are often considered more serious and more elevated. I think the idea of appreciating things that are made by hand and appreciating fashion as an art and appreciating fashion as an important 
business is incredible. And I think the idea that if people locally want to articulate what they do as couture in order to feed into that notion of fashion as art, it's beautiful. But it is still wrong, mate. (laughs) There's also a legal definition. (laughs) Okay, so from blogger, who is going to be a professional teacher, and that was going to be your path, Mm -hmm. you've transitioned to be a fashion journalist. Yeah. How did it happen? I was interested in fashion because I understood it to be this enormous system of potential change. I was very cognizant of the fact that everybody wore clothes. And for that reason, it was a powerful tool to shift and shape culture and also society. And yet it was something that despite us all wearing clothes and despite us all being consumers, either of high street or high end fashion, many people felt excluded. But I think the lens through which I view the world, I often felt like I was the only one who was excluded, probably because I'm a deep narcissist in many ways. But It's all about me. Yeah, exactly. I was like, I am the only one who's left out on this entire planet. Um, But I was interested in how it could possibly change. Never imagining for a second that you could be in rooms where you could help facilitate that or you could at least be listening to the conversations that are continuing to change so I used to read everything I could I would sit and read WWD the FT the business of fashion the New York Times I would of course read the glossy magazines but I wanted to know how the industry worked I wasn't terribly interested in trends because I couldn't access them so if polka dots were in this month or red was in tomorrow that was great but I probably couldn't buy it so I was interested in fashion as a system and I used to sit around the dining room table every evening and talk at my family about whatever I had learned that day about the fashion industry be it Claire White Keller being a British designer out of French legacy maison or talking about I'd be like just pass the sauce you know yeah. whatever and I'd be like oh um, what do you think you know Balenciaga is now a $1 billion business or Demna has just left Velimor or, you know, Gucci's a $10 billion business. What are they saying to the world? And my mother would say, that's lovely. And we love you. (laughs) But is there anybody else you can talk to about this? And in my immediate life, there wasn't. There was nobody interested about fashion in the way that I was. So I went back to this blog and over 10 years began just documenting what I thought was interesting. And began asking the people who I admired, who I had access to, who were kind of local in Ireland or the UK, and just asked them if I could interview them. Because I think with a background in education, I'm always hungry to learn. I am always very conscious of what I don't know. And I'm eager to be educated and learn more and see things from different perspectives. So I used to just irritate people mercilessly and was like, hello, can I speak to you, please? I have all of these questions. (laughs) <laughs> and it grew but and developed from there. To pick you up on saying you had access to, you also were bold in terms of reaching out to people you didn't, in inverted commas, have access to. No. And I think that if we have lots of listeners who are fashion students, for example, people often think, but I don't know anyone. I hear it yeah. often. It's all right for you. You're connected. You know everyone. Actually, it starts with asking, doesn't it? And you had an experience where people would just say to you, sure, yeah. if you're interested, how great. I'd love to talk to you. My first experience and the first time I ever came to London Fashion Week was because of an interaction on the street in Dublin, Paul Costello, who is an oh, Irish Paul designer, Costello, who's an Irish designer who shows in London, has a capsule collection for Dunn Stores, which is a chain of retailers in, in Ireland. And I was walking down Georgia Street, which is a very busy street in Dublin, and I saw him standing in front did of me. Did you run up to him and say, yeah. hey, wait, Paul? Yeah, I, I actually did. He was admiring his work in the windows of Dunn Stores. And I I kind of thought to myself... I, Talking I, of narcissism. Sorry, Paul. No, no, but I think he was just checking it. And <laughs> I'm I only joking. Of, I didn't mean it. <laughs> and I kind of thought, I can't let this opportunity pass. So I went up to him, tugged on the sleeve of his jacket and said, hi, 
my name is Sinead and kind of word vomited at him and said how much I admired kind of his work. And then he was very nice to me and I left. And I thought, I wonder if I could ever interview Paul. So on the bus on the way home, I guessed his email address and it didn't bounce. So I thought, that's a success. And somebody from his team then came back a few weeks later and said, hi, we'd love for you to chat to Paul. He's going to be back in Ireland in a couple of weeks. Let us know when works. And it happened. And the first thing he said to me was, where can I sit that's comfortable for you? So he sat on the floor and I stood so that we were at eye level. And we had this great conversation recorded on my iPhone about the business of fashion. How do you move from one country to another? How do you find your voice within a very busy fashion week schedule? And I transcribed it. I wrote it up on my blog and I put it out on the internet and I sent it to his team. And his team said, we really liked your interview. We thought it was really interesting. Quick question. Are you available on this date? Because that's Paul's fashion show in London and we'd love to invite you and I remember thinking this is going to be the best moment of my life like I have made it <laughs> but I tried to be really calm and cool in the um, email I that I responded and I was like I think I have something on at that time but let me try to move it around whilst texting my mother going book the flights we are off to London and for me I think if you approach people with kindness and if the interaction isn't about being transactional but is about sharing an experience and, and I think learning something people will always respond oh, I love it. with I such love it generosity today. and I have been fortunate to experience those moments on on many occasions I mean I first met Edward Enninful because we were sat together at Christopher Bailey's last show for Burberry and I was like hello my <laughs> name is Sinead it's nice to meet you I have this big idea about disability and fashion I would like to tell you more and he said tell me more let's come to the office and let's meet and you go from that to being on the cover so in this hotel room I was delighted to find a copy of the September issue of British Vogue <laughs> where you are one of the 15 change making women on the cover the 16th is mirrored so it can be you I was really happy because you couldn't buy that for love nor money it sold out mm. in two seconds what a phenomenal thing just extraordinary I got an email earlier this year from Vogue saying can you take a call we have something very important to talk about. And I was like, oh, what did I do? I'm in trouble. Was it something I said? And it wasn't. I was in the middle of the street in Dublin. And I said, sure, call me whenever I'm free. And I kind of stepped into a doorway and the phone rang and I said, hello. And they said, um, we have some news. We have this idea. So for the September issue of British Vogue, for the first time, we are going to kind of quadrant the magazine cover and we're going to put 16 different faces on who we think are shaping the world and we would like you to be one of them would you be interested and I said yeah yeah sure uh, sure and I said actually I have some news too and they said what and I said I'm kind of going to the Met Gala in two weeks and they were like oh great this all <laughs> and it was one of those odd moments where I thought I'm not sure I could have ever predicted this conversation ever and it was so wonderful I mean to be one of the 15 alongside Laverne Cox who was the first ever transgender woman to be on a cover of Vogue magazine Jacinda Ardern who is an extraordinary prime minister who is leading with empathy Adwa Aboa who is instigating conversations around mental health in a business as tricky as modeling to be Greta Thornburg who is traveling the world by boat to ensure that we listen and take change in relation to climate justice is so important. And for anyone who has in fact been 
I don't know, holidaying in outer space. The issue was guest edited by... Royal Highness, the Duchess of Sussex, which was incredible. And I think to be part of something like the legacy of Vogue and to be selected by Her Royal Highness was a it's it's hard to believe and I think it gave the issue and gave the conversations that we're all talking about and the work that we're doing such amplification that you couldn't even measure it so I think you know if there is a future for my career in fashion and I reflect back post-retirement on moments that change things I think that could be one of them. How old are you? I am 28 I turned 29 in three days. Oh, happy birthday. A Thank Virgo. You. A, I know. I love Virgos. I'm married to one. I am. So I've been talking a lot about this this week because a lot of fashion people are Virgos. So I am a Virgo, which means that I am deeply organized. I am an overthinker, but close to my emotions, which is the kind of mirroring of the two. But I am a Sagittarius rising, which apparently makes sense to many people because I am dramatic <laughs> <laughs> and enjoy that part of my personality. I asked you how old you were because I think it's interesting to muse on success and what happens when it hits early, how you get it. And the reason why I wanted to speak with you about this is because you and I both judges on the Green Carpet Emerging Mm -hmm. Designer Competition. We are seeing the work of emerging designers all the time. I seek it out everywhere I go, like to talk to students. And often I'm asked, like, how do you make it? How do you navigate that tricky, difficult time when you're not thinking you'll ever make it? And then I think my question to you is what happens when you do? Because you talk about the Met Gala, you talk about Mm. being on... You couldn't be more successful than you've been this year. You've gone from being on the cover of Business of Fashion, which is amazing, to suddenly then cover of Vogue, going to the Met Gala, going to Davos. I mean, from the outside looking in, you're on top of the world. I am very lucky. And I say that not to dismiss the hard work that I put in because... Much like yourself, I am tenacious and I am optimistic, which means I think anything is possible and I'm relentless in finding a way in which to do so. But I am lucky in ways in which, like I've said, I mean, my support system is so incredibly strong. And I love... So your family. Yeah, and my friends. And I love going home to be reminded of life often outside of fashion because... Sometimes they can be two different worlds and sometimes they can be the same world. And I think having that as the skeleton of my success is incredibly important. I was in Los Angeles recently and one of the best things that I got to do was go out and meet fifth graders in a school just off Skid Row. And I'm always intrigued by the questions that kids ask. And one of them put up their hand and said, are you famous? (laughs) And said something like, what's it like being famous? And I said, well, I, I don't think I'm famous but I think fame is interesting I said for me fame or we use the word influence a lot in this current era have to be purposeful I always look at it as what can you do with the attention that is given to you and with that comes a huge responsibility so I try as much as possible to do work with purpose and I try to do things that fulfill my goals and ambitions that take steps forward in my advocacy work and that bring other people with me and I'm really rigid about those principles so for me it's like well and I'm very grateful for all of the opportunities that I've had and for the people who have mentored me and the people who have brought me along with them and it's my role to return that so yeah it's it's trying to push forward and I think for me I would love change within the fashion industry and within the entire world to happen instantaneously 
but I'm also very cognizant of the fact and conscious that that's not the way the world works. And if it was to do so, the changes that would be made wouldn't be permanent. They would be for the publicity. They would be for the announcement. So that takes time. And it's trying to be patient and tenacious, um, Uh, which are skills that I am practicing in harmony. And also realizing that I think we're trying to change a world, all of us in our own ways, that has existed this way forever. And we're trying to shift power. We're trying to shift influence. We're trying to shift economic systems. Mm -hmm. We're trying to shift thinking. We're trying to shift politics. We're trying to shift people. And that takes time. And you have to be... I know, I'm always in such a hurry, but you're right. But you have to be open that we're still living in a very blinkered, biased world. Mm -hmm. I'm Irish. I live on an island of four and a half million people. And that biases my lens. Immigration came late to Ireland which means that we're still very white focused Mm -hmm. and that needs to change. Thankfully, we're having more and more conversations. We've had two referendums ensuring that marriage equality and women's reproductive rights are legislated within our constitution. But based on where we come from and our own experiences, I am disabled, but I am cisgendered. I am white. I am straight and I come from a working class area and all of those things frame my work. So I'm always intrigued by how can you use something like a spotlight or an influence or a moment to amplify other voices and to broaden the conversation and to encourage action. I'm just thinking about your background in education Mm. when you raise those things because I think part of the work that we both do in different Mm -hmm. ways is about staying educated and recognising that your lens does affect the way that you approach these things. Mm -hmm. And for me, I've been having to constantly check myself in terms of looking at sustainable fashion through this lens of being a privileged, skinny white woman who are we interviewing who are we talking to how are we making sure that this is giving voice to people who have been left out of the conversation and I think that education is such an important part of that I'm always trying to teach myself and I'm always finding that I'm falling short and it's okay to fall short yeah but you have to keep questioning yourself and it's okay to make mistakes Mm. and it's okay to learn from them it's not okay to keep making mistakes but it's okay to make a mistake and to find the space to learn from it it's also okay to say that you don't know absolutely i mean even when you were coming here to meet me today i was like what do i do about making sure that this is as comfortable and fantastic for you as possible what am i going to do about the sofa it's too high Mm. and then i was in a like social anxiety thinking is it a weird question to ask is it an offensive question to ask should I fix it and then but it's better for you to ask than for me to have to say you know I think when we talk about anybody who's a minority voice in any way in society there was always the pressure on them to explicate their vulnerabilities in public in order to be accommodated and I think removing that burden and placing a sense of responsibility on people who can and should be allies and giving them the courage and the confidence to say just ask the question just ask can I help And be comfortable with the person's answer, be it yes or no. If I say, I'm fine. I genuinely mean that I'm fine because Mm. I've probably practiced this and done this, but that doesn't mean that I'm not appreciative for the gesture and the offer I am. But also if I say, yes, actually, would you mind? I'm on a flight and I can't reach up there to put my bag. Would you mind putting it up? I'd be really grateful. And I think we just have to be comfortable stepping outside ourselves and being uncomfortable about the things that we don't know or haven't experienced it. Like there's a risk to it, but I think if you're kind, and I fundamentally believe that kindness can change the world, as trite and as Instagrammable as that sounds, but kindness for me isn't about being overly or synthetically positive. It's about being empathetic and being generous. And I think those are really important things that we haven't defined within leadership before because they haven't been perhaps very kind of 
male characteristics or traits and that leading with kindness is more maybe more feminine and is considered weak and a sign of vulnerability well, but I actually think it's strength about power. I think it's What's a sign powerful? of strength and for me I think the world would genuinely be made better if more people said what can I do to help and were then willing to step forward and take action fashion is famously non-inclusive mm -hmm. and you can look at that from many different perspectives I think we're obviously getting a lot better in terms of inclusivity on the runway for example I mentioned sustainability we're absolutely nowhere when it comes to size inclusivity with sustainable fashion maybe fashion in general but let's just talk about what inclusive fashion could look like and perhaps start by looking at some of the ways in which it doesn't work I mean just from your own perspective Sinead I think it's about looking at it through a lens of innovation and creativity. So what I need from clothes that I want to buy, in many ways, is alterations and adaptations. And it's about looking at that service as a luxury, not as something that's just for accessibility, but as something that could improve or include the beauty of the garment. And for me, that's not just something that little people need in terms of shortening the hem on a dress or the length of a sleeve. But wheelchair users, they might need shorter sleeves in order to make sure it doesn't get caught in a wheel or they need a shorter hem so that it doesn't crease. And also just, I mean, there was a wonderful exhibition at yeah. the FIT last year called Fashion and the Body, I think. Mm. And there was a designer there that had designed with wheelchair users in mind. And it was about also the length of the bodice on Absolutely. a shirt. And making sure that it doesn't kind of crease and crumble. But being able to alter a garment within the space in which it's created is something that could benefit everybody because you might prefer three-quarter length sleeves. You might think sleeves below your fingertips is chic. You might have questionable taste, but you do you. But it's this idea that we all have an appetite for personalization. And instead of looking at personalization as just something that can be monogrammed with our initials, we can look broader and actually find wonderful opportunities that are inclusive, profitable and beautiful. You now are in a position where you can talk to designers and they can make you wonderful clothes. Mm -hmm. And actually, can we just take a moment to discuss some of them? You're wearing Gucci jacket, but yeah. we talked about the Victoria Beckham show and you were wearing that wonderful polka dot mm -hmm. custom made dress. Just quickly, what do you wear to Davos? So this January was my second time to go to Davos, which is a bizarre sentence to be able to say. And I was one of the openers of the conference. And this year, it was my first time to wear Gucci. And I wore this beautiful blue silk pleated dress with a pink lace underskirt. And it just moved with such grace and beauty. But if we're talking about power and different definitions of power, there is nothing more intriguing to me than walking around the main Congress Centre at Davos, which is populated by suits. And me walking around three foot five inches tall and head to toe blue silk Gucci. So good. It's like this wonderful <laughs> visual contrast where you're like, oh, oh. And then you have conversations with people and they kind of ask hilariously, you know, with a sense of humor. And what are you wearing? And I'd say, Gucci. Gucci. No, 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 no. No, but what are you wearing? No, no. Gucci. To address Davos? Yeah. Enjoy your blue suit, mate. <laughs> yeah. But what did you have to wear before? How did you navigate your fashion life before you had this access to be able to wear some of the most incredible clothes known to humankind? <laughs> It'll all go in a museum, I hope. Um, it was a challenge. I straddle the boundary between children's wear and women's wear. I'm a size 9 to 10 in children's wear and between a 6 to 8 in women's wear, depending on the garment and the part of my body I'm covering. And it's hard because in children's wear... 
there's no allowances for a bust or there's no seams provided at the front and I'm a woman nor should there be in terms of that age group and I find footwear very difficult it's trying to find clothes that mirror my personality I think in a lot of children's departments a lot of the clothes for girls are vibrantly pink are daddy's little princess or some sort of visual motif on it that feels for me as an almost 30 year old woman infantilizing and then in women's wear the proportions were just so different to mine that I was enveloped in fabric and it would take such effort for a seamstress and that's not a skill that I have to alter those Mm. clothes so it was trying to find what worked and I always had this kind of monologue in my head that in many ways my mom taught me you know wear what suits you don't wear what you like And often for me, those two things were a complete contradiction because what I could wear was an A-line dress because that was maybe simpler to alter or what I could wear was, you know, a t-shirt and jeans because I'd elasticate the waist at the back and cut off the legs, but it was a very specific style of jean. It was high-waisted with kind of a, probably a a wider leg because where I would have to cut the jeans Mm. was at the knee and it wasn't tapered at the ankle. So you began to just have this very specific view of what you could go in and buy Mm. because of what would be possible to customize I think the greatest joy that I've had is widening my palette okay I remember having a conversation with somebody about two years ago and they were like yeah but you don't really wear a color (laughs) I was like no I I don't get to wear a color it's not that I don't want to wear a color it's just that if things are made they're usually made in black white and gray and maybe a bit of navy, which is beautifully chic. But it meant for a long time I was wearing head-to-toe black and accessorising. So there was no real opportunity to explore print, to explore colour, to explore different fabrics. And now I get to do so. There's a lovely quote that I noted down from you, and it is, clothes have been my armour in the moments I lack confidence and challenge biases as to how a disabled woman should dress. I mean, now you're colourful, very fashionable. <laughs> Thank you. How have they been communication tools for you to be able to talk more about what inclusivity means and to be a change maker, I guess, through not just what you say, but what you say through your clothes? I spent a bit of time in Paris recently learning French. And whilst I was there, I picked up Susan Sontag's book, Notes on Photography. Mm, It's great. It's really good. And I really like Susan Sontag and she's buried there and I, I went to the gravesite. I love her writing. And I picked up the book in Shakespeare and Covenant. Did you I go thought, to her grave? I what did. For? <laughs> just to see what it was like. Really? Yeah, she's buried not far from Beckett. They, they're kind of around the corner from one another. I just wanted to see it. And beautiful people leave coins and it's black marble. And I clearly had too much time in Paris. And I read the book and I was about 45 pages in. And Susan is talking about Diane Arbus's photography. Mm. And Diane saw herself as somebody who would take photographs of things that were othered or odd. Yeah, I mean, those pictures were, I guess, cataclysmic at the time. I mean, she was photographing, how would we even describe it? I can't find the language that doesn't feel wrong. Exactly. The language that I'm about to use is not right. Exactly. I wonder what language she used. I mean, she basically went around the kind of underbelly of New York. Where was it? It was all over. Yeah, right. And when Susan talks about the work she talks about how lots of people thought Diana's work would be this way in which to redefine beauty because she was photographing things that and people and mostly people who the world wouldn't have described as beauty perhaps it's antithesis and Susan says 
that that's not possible. Because in her book, the words are, I mean, if you photograph dwarfs, you don't get grace and beauty. You just get dwarfs. And over the next 25 to 40 pages, uses the word dwarf and midget in oh derogatory gosh. ways in which you can't imagine. And that text is from a specific era. I know. But and it's from a specific way of thinking. And as somebody who admires Susan's work, what shocked me most was that this is a text that is almost a curriculum yeah. for people who are interested I in photography. I don't remember that. I read it when I was at university. I don't remember that. I mean, mm. I, I also recently read a biography of Diane Arbus that, um, again, that language is also confronting. We mm-hmm. talk about freaks. Yeah. And for but me, one of the that's most... disturbing, isn't it, to read that when it's someone you admire? Um, for me, one of the most powerful things about working in fashion is genuinely the ability to transform what is defined as stylish or fashionable or chic or beautiful and i'm I'm not trying to put all of those terms on myself because we still have a very eurocentric definition on all of those things but the power of the visibility cannot be undermined i was tagged in a photograph overnight from a parent on the other side of the world with their three-year-old son who has a chondroplasia the same condition as me and the three-year-old son is looking at my photograph in the September issue of British Vogue. And that is, I'm, one of my best skills is that I'm articulate and I find it difficult Speechless, to put yeah. words around that. But then the visibility is one thing. Well, you have to see, I mean, it's a cliche, but it needs to be restated. Representation matters because if you cannot see yourself, exactly. you can't imagine yourself And then there. it's trying not to be complacent with the visibility once you obtain it and trying to use that visibility to push forward because for me the solution has never been that I have a beautiful wardrobe it is a very ridiculous and wonderful starting point do you get loads of letters or emails letters I'm sure my age do people post you letters <laughs> saying that they are thankful no but uh, do people contact you all the time and say you've changed their worldview kinda yeah yeah uh, yeah. <laughs> humble you've no. gone humble when we're looking at how we can make fashion design more inclusive, one of the things I often hear from designers is, oh, of course, we'd love to do that. We'd love to do that. But it's a budget thing. We're too small. Or another, you know, we can't afford to make more sizes. Or another thing they might say is, well, that's not my market. Can we unpack that briefly for a moment? To somebody who says that's not my market, I would politely question why not? The market for the disabled community has a spending power of... About 1.3 trillion US dollars. And if you bring in their family and friends, it's about 7 trillion US dollars per annum. And I say family and friends because my siblings, who have little interest in the world of fashion, have bought lipsticks and fragrances from the brands that have supported me. So there is a community that you build when you push forward with this work. So there's a financial opportunity. There's also an educational one. So every time I work with a brand and with a designer, I would talk to them about my measurements, which are entirely different to everybody else's proportionally. And one of the things I say is that my waist measurement does not match my hip measurement. So can we allow for two additional inches at the hemline to ensure that fabric doesn't gather at the back, basically, because I have a big ass. And can we just make that even? And that's something specific that they are doing for me. But most people in the world do not have a hip measurement that matches their waist measurement. And yet there is no allowances within patterns to commit to that. And for me, I look at it as what can you learn from working with different types of people in different types of bodies? And I think, yes, there is always budget constraints. There is always limits to what we can do. But the solution is to never do nothing. There are ways in which you can be involved. There are ways in which you can help. If you cannot create clothes, 
when you were putting together a fashion show or an event, step back and question, what types of people have we invited? Who isn't here? Do we have a sign language interpreter? Are we using alt text on Instagram to ensure that those with screen readers can access our content in the way that everybody else can? Are we thinking about, even in our workforce, are we looking at the types of bathrooms? Do we have, are they only binary? Do we have accessibility, physical and cultural accessibility within our buildings? Where are we hiring people from? Do we ask people if they have access requirements? There are so many things that you can do. Building a collection is merely one way. And I don't think disabled people want a capsule collection. Fashion's insight into inclusion has always been segregation. And by that, I mean you go into a retail space and if you are plus-sized, if you are fat, if you are curvy, whatever words you use to describe yourself and that community differ on terminology, as does mine. The solution is not that you and your friend go shopping and you get to go to your corner. Oh, goodness, yeah. And the solution for disabled people is not to create a capsule collection where we get to go to our corner. It's not inclusive, even in our best attempt to be so. It's about taking a step back and going, okay, well, what's needed? And the first question I would say is, have you actually spoke to the people? Are you making decisions about what you can't do without actually learning what's required? And even fundamentally, have you even thought about it? Because Mm. I think one of the kind of barriers to progress on so much of this stuff around inclusivity is that because we don't have these conversations more broadly, because people aren't seeing themselves more broadly represented, actually, I bet in that listing of some of the things that brands and people with businesses might be able to look at in terms of making the whole world more inclusive. I bet you people are thinking, I never even thought of that. I did. I thought I didn't think about Instagram and... Mm-hmm. Alt text. No? That's why I use image descriptions. I do both. I include it before Instagram so had all alt text. That. We can all do that now. You can all do it. You can do it on Twitter. You can do it on Facebook. And it's just about being conscious and aware. And I think... And learning. Yeah. And being open to it. And, and I think, again, coming back to that thing of not being afraid to ask, saying, what can we do? But fashion's an industry that has always had power. And it's like being a teacher. Teachers have been historically afraid to admit to students and pupils that they don't know the answers to something. And if a child, same with a parent, if a child asks a question like, oh, you just why make it is up. the sky blue? You make it up. <laughs> Instead of saying, I don't know. Why don't we sit down, pull out the encyclopedia, there's me showing my age, and see if there's an answer in there. Or why don't we look it up? And sharing in that. And I think that's, for me, education is always a microcosm of the fashion industry. We just need to take that approach where we go, we actually don't know the answer to that. But that takes real bravery. That takes a different type of leadership. And I think we're seeing some of it. But it's, yeah, it's about being willing to be vulnerable. You've answered my question. I was going to finish up by just asking you how much you think it's changing and how hopeful you are that we're actually on the brink of a big change where we're becoming radically more inclusive and more awake to a lot of these issues. There's change happening. It's tangible and you can feel it. It's not happening as fast as I would like. But I also understand that the accelerated rate of change that I want is not possible. We talked about that to begin with. But I think we each have power in participating in that change. Whether you are a CEO or whether you are a consumer. I think so often we are very vocal and deeply critical when companies do things that are wrong. As we should be but we are less vocal when companies try and do new things because we assume that everybody else is going to be the cheerleader and that's just not true. The first thing I would ask people is, what does your social media timeline look like? I deliberately follow people who have a lived experience that's different to me so that I can be educated by their words on terminology, on experience and also so that it's reflective of the world in which we live. And I think so often... 
we follow the same types of people. And that just reframes our lens. So I think we can all take a step back and go, actually, do you know what? I would love to learn about sustainability. I would love to learn about what's really impacting disability advocates around the world at the moment. And I think we can all participate in that. We all have a voice and we all have influence, be that with a million followers on Instagram or around your dining room table. And I think we need to have confidence in the power that we each have and do something with it. Sinead Burke, you are our 100th guest on this podcast and I'm just going to say that you're my favourite. Well, thank you. This has been such a treat and I have listened to most of those 100 episodes so I am very grateful. It's getting hard My parents feel that I'm defending you I tell them all that they are wrong Because I love you Thank you for listening to Wardrobe Crisis. To learn more about our guests and the issues that we've spoken about today, hop on over to my website, which is clairepress.com forward slash podcast. You can get in touch there and I really hope you will. I'd love to hear from you. And you can also find links to my social media. And finally, if you're enjoying the show, please head over to iTunes and subscribe. You know what they say, first in, best dressed. Subscribers are first to find out when there's a new episode and it also helps other people discover wardrobe crisis, so I'd love your help with that. Because the more people who switch on to ethical fashion, the better. Music is by Montaigne. She recorded this special acoustic version of Because I Love You, which is from her Glorious Heights album, especially for Wardrobe Crisis. How good is that? Thank you, Montaigne. Because I love you, my parents feel that this is a waste of time. I tell you we're okay, I won't admit that I am blind. My friends don't feel that I'm carrying a steel. I tell them all that they are wrong. Because I love you, because I love you. Because I love you, because I love you.